scary movie. Welcome back to Horror Science. I'm your host, Olivia Eiler. This week we'll be covering Scream, directed by Wes Craven and released by Dimension Films in 1996. A little fun fact there, Dimension Films is the same distribution company that puts out the scary movie franchise, which is kind of funny to me because that movie pokes so much fun at Scream. Uh, But before I really get into the meat of this episode, there's a couple housekeeping things uh, that I'll go over. First of all, it's been a while since I've posted an episode, about three weeks now, uh, and I'd like to say that I have a good reason for that. I recently went on a conference in New York City for high school radio, so that kind of explains why I've been absent for so long. I've also got an announcement to make regarding how you get this podcast. Uh, So if you're listening on SoundCloud right now, This is going to be the last episode that I post to SoundCloud, and the reason for that is they really limit how much free space you have to upload files, and they've started to remove some of my first episodes. So if you want to go back and listen to A Nightmare on Elm Street or you want to listen to Halloween, those are gone. So I am switching over to a different host so that all of the episodes can be available. So after, after a few weeks, the SoundCloud account is going to be deleted. So go ahead and make that switch if that's how you're getting it. Uh, the website will still be up and running, and that is horrorscience.x10host.com. Uh, that's still going to have the audio from every episode that I've ever done, as well as links out to all of the sources that I referenced throughout the episodes, um, including this episode. And then if you're getting this through iTunes, this is really important. Um, you're going to have to switch over. I am in the process. iTunes is a little tricky to deal with sometimes. Um, I'm in the process of deleting the uh, the overarching podcast page for Horror Science. And I've already submitted a new one. It's been accepted. So it's just going to be a matter of you going back to the search bar, typing in Horror Science, and subscribing to the new one. And you'll know it's the, the right one because it'll have episodes one up through eight instead of just the last couple of episodes. Uh, So now that that's been covered, I'll go ahead and hop into the actual episode. This is a little different format. I'm going to make these episodes a little bit shorter from now on, uh, just really narrow in on a couple key topics that I find most interesting. Uh, And with Scream, I think it's, it's such a focused horror movie, and it really makes a commentary on the genre as a whole and I think that's one of the reasons that it was so successful and that people are still watching it today and laughing and it's just so meta. One of the key parts of that movie is that line towards the end where Sydney finds out that Billy's the killer or one of the killers that's another iconic thing about Scream and Billy says Sydney don't blame the movies movies don't create psychos movies make psychos more creative Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> um, so the main focus of this episode is really to dive into that quote. What effect do movies and other media have upon the audience? And this is actually really exciting for me because it really ties into some of the schoolwork that I'm doing. I'm in a class called The Processes and Effects of Mass Communication, uh, which is basically a very airy academic way of saying that 
uh, media does have effects on audiences, but I wanted to look at what effect does violent media specifically have upon individuals. So before I get into the academic research on that, you know, I love case studies, so I'm going to do a, two of those very quickly. Uh, there are just examples abound of violent movies having an impact upon audience members who then go out and do a copycat crime. Um, you know, there's Natural Born Killers. Obviously, that's a huge one. Saw, Child's Play, The Dark Knight, Money Train, The Town, The Matrix. It just goes on and on. Yeah, that's too. I think she wants a motive. Hmm. Hmm. I don't really believe in motive, Sid. I mean, did Norman Bates have a motive? No. Did they ever really decide why Hannibal Lecter liked to eat people? Don't think so. See, it's a lot scarier when there's no motive, Sid. But because Scream is such a meta movie, uh, I thought that it would be fitting to use examples of Scream inspiring real-life crimes. And this first one comes out of Belgium. Uh, the source on this one is The Guardian out of the UK. Uh, as always, like I said earlier, you can find these sources, links out to the specific pages that I use on the website, which is horrorscience.x10host.com. So like I was saying, this comes out of Belgium, and the criminal here is a 24-year-old truck driver named Thierry Hardin. Uh, basically, he was, in his mind, I suppose, forming a relationship with a 15-year-old girl who was still in school. Her name was Allison Cambier. So uh, she drops by his house one day. They live in the same neighborhood in Belgium. And she says that she's trying to drop off some videotapes, just have a chat and visit. Um, so Hardon here makes some romantic advances towards her. Uh, keep in mind that he's 24 and she's 15, kind of creepy. Uh, but she says, hey, you know, I don't really want that. I'm just here to drop off the videotapes. He does not like that answer. So he steps into another room, and in that room... He has a scream costume waiting and two kitchen knives. So he puts on his costume. He goes back to the room where Allison is. She's stabbed 30 times. Her left side is destroyed. Um, and then after she passes away, he lays her down. He calls his father and a colleague from work, and he confesses to his crimes. Uh, he's obviously apprehended by the police. He's just confessed to a murder. And he did confess to the police that it was premeditated and motivated by the Scream trilogy. There is um, some interest here, at least by the media that covered this story, in what Allison was doing at Hadan's house anyway. Um... Her father says Allison was not in love with her killer. Uh, that's what he told the daily newspaper La Dinere Huere. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. I don't speak French. Uh, but he said, people are misrepresenting facts and talking to me about a love affair which never existed. And it's not really my place to speculate. I don't know enough from the sources that I've looked at. But it just seems weird that she went to his house in the first place uh, with that age difference there. Uh, another interesting thing to note about this case is that there was nothing in his background to suggest that he was going to do this. He did not have a criminal record 
or a history of psychiatric issues. So it would be interesting, I think, to dive a little bit deeper into this than the media did. It seems like the media were really focused on it as, you know, this movie caused it and there was this failed love interest, when in actuality I would love to see um, what was really running through his mind when he committed that crime. This next case comes out of the United States, beautiful scenic L.A. Um, The sources on this one are the L.A. Times, CBS News, and the good old Associated Press News Archive. Uh, So the victim in this case was 37-year-old Rita Castillo, and uh, the killers, one of them was her son, 17-year-old Mario Padilla, and his 15-year-old cousin, Samuel Ramirez. Uh, These boys were described as obsessed with Scream 1 and Scream 2. This crime happened in January of 1998, uh, so those were the only two that had been released at that time. They had seen the movies dozens upon dozens of times. I mean, that one day in January, they walked up behind Castillo and used four knives and a screwdriver to stab her to death. Um, And according to the L.A. County Sheriff Sergeant Robert Stoneman, uh, the boys were planning to buy a Grim Reaper mask and a voice distortion box like the one used in the movie, but they couldn't afford them. So um, one of the motives thrown around before this went to trial was that the boys needed money for that murder spree that they were planning. They wanted to follow the storyline of Scream 1 and Scream 2 as closely as they could. Uh, Transcripts from a preliminary hearing also showed that Padilla, who was the 17-year-old, picked out a classmate that he didn't know, but that looked an awful lot like Drew Barrymore uh, to be one of the first victims. And if you've seen Scream, you know that Drew Barrymore had that iconic first scene. Uh, On film, it's really interesting, but it should not translate to real life. So according to the prosecutor in this case, and this came out before the trial, the two boys wanted to go on and kill Mario's mother and stepfather before moving on to kill two girls uh, that they had been making threatening calls to and sending letters to. And Mario actually pleaded guilty to these charges um, of making terroristic threats against these girls using a voice distorter. Uh, Interestingly, though, when time came to the actual trial, the movie Scream, uh, and Scream 2 as well, were barred from being referenced at the trial. Uh, I would love to know the reasoning behind that, um, but they were not included in any of the official proceedings within the court. One thing, though, that really caught my eye as I was reading through these sources um, is one of them said, a friend of Castillo... Um, who was the murdered woman, said that two months before the murder, uh, she confessed to the friend that she was really struggling to keep her son away from his cousin, the 15-year-old, because his cousin was frequently high on drugs. And just reading through this, it seems like Scream may have had a role in determining how they carried out these crimes, you know, their modus operandi. But I wonder if drugs could have played a role in this case as well. So now I'm going to move into something that's um, a little more scientific. I'm going to move out of these case studies 
and into the textbook that I'm using for my media effects class right now. The name of it is Fundamentals of Media Effects. It's written by Jennings Bryant, Susan Thompson, and Bruce W. Finklia. This is coming from the second edition, which came out in 2013. I think if it's good enough for my college education, it's good enough for my podcast. Uh, 2013 is still pretty recent. And obviously, there's not going to be an internet link I can send out for this textbook. So I'm going to supplement that with a link to Amazon. You can buy the book if you want to check me on this stuff. And this really focuses on something called cultivation. And there's an entire chapter dedicated to cultivation. And cultivation is the broad idea that over time, viewing messages with the same sort of theme or content or material will shape how people view the world. And the pioneer really behind cultivation was named George Gerbner. And he started out by looking at the existing views on media effects. Uh, some of these included the pain fund studies, which ran in the 1920s and 1930s. And those were a series of studies on films that were designed to look at the the effects that those had upon children, the effects of the violence and the sexually explicit content. Uh, and what those studies found really supported something called the direct effects model, which basically uh, describes the audience as passive, just um, absolutely absorbing whatever media message comes at them. This also goes along with the War of the Worlds broadcast that was put out by Orson Welles. Uh, through the radio waves, he was reading this science fiction and the station didn't send out warnings that, you know, it's just just for entertainment, it's not real. They didn't send those warnings out at the most opportune times. So a lot of people thought that this science fiction that was being read on the air was a real broadcast. Uh, and a lot of that comes from Orson Welles' incredible talent. But um, several, several hundred people packed up and left their homes as a result of this broadcast. Uh, and that led to something called the hypodermic needle uh, effects model. It goes back to that pain fund studies model where audience members were just viewed as completely passive, just receiving whatever message came their way. George Gerbner said, that's too simple, it's too sensational. We need to take a look at this again. I've seen one too many. No, sir, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos for creating And Gerbner also believed that there was no before and after for violent media content. Um, even, you know, looking at something like War of the Worlds or the Pain Fund films, we're exposed to violent media from the moment we're born. We, we become so accustomed to it that there really is no before and no after. It's just a constant in our lives. And Gerbner thought that in the 1960s, and it's, it's even more true today in 2017. So in the 1960s, Gerbner headed up something called the Cultural Indicators Research Project, and that project had three separate components. I'm going to go over them all, but we're really only going to focus on the last one. The first one was institutional process analysis, and that basically looked at how the media is managed, how it produces and distributes the messages that it does. Uh, the second component was message system analysis, which really 
studied the images that were presented in media content. So stuff like stereotyping, gender roles, that sort of thing. And the final thing, which is really the focus of this podcast, is cultivation analysis. And that measures the quantity and the quality of media violence and the effect that that has upon the audience. So in doing this, Gerbner studied you know, how much violent media content is there out there. Um, and he also studied how audience responded to that. And he determined that by the end of elementary school, the average American would view 8,000 murders. Uh, now, not, not flesh murders. They wouldn't be there, you know, an eyewitness. They would view that through the media. And by the age of 18, viewers would have seen 200,000 violent acts portrayed by media. And Gerbner said that it was the routine nature of this violence that made it so dangerous. Uh, it's not one thing. It's not one film. It's not Scream or Natural Born Killers or one, one season of a TV show like Dexter or CSI. It's this cumulative effect, and that's why we call it cultivation studies. And the professor that I have for this class describes the type of violence we see most often as happy violence, at least in fictional accounts. It's either underscored with humor or there's not really any consequences for it, or it seems kind of justified in the movie. Um, but a lot of this violence that we see does come from the news. And Gerbner basically said that us taking in all of this violence really gives it a sense of normalcy. And it just seems like it's a common thing for violence to, to be all around us. So Gerbner really focused on the idea that you can't just look at one show or one movie, or one video game. It's a cumulative thing. And Gerbner hypothesized this thing called mean world syndrome. He says that watching TV, watching violent TV, doesn't cause viewers to behave in a way that's violent. They're not going to always imitate what they see. We hear a lot about imitation, like I was saying at the top of the show, with Saw and Scream and Natural Born Killers. We see that a lot in the media because it's sensational. It's a story. Uh, what's not a story is people being afraid to walk down the street at night or people not wanting to park in the parking garage. Uh, and that's where Mean World Syndrome comes in. Basically, it says that there is a direct correlation between TV viewing and perceptions of the world as being this violent, scary place. Uh, you wouldn't know it from the news today, but violent crime is at a 30-year low in the United States right now. But three-fourths of Americans believe the exact opposite. And two-thirds of people who think that crime is a serious personal problem get the majority of their news from TV. Now, there are a lot of human costs to this mean world syndrome. Um, obviously, it's not healthy for an individual to be scared all the time, uh, but it really becomes a societal issue because a lot of what we know just as individuals about other races and other cultures comes from our media. I can say that I've never met an American Indian. Everything I know about them has come from the media. But with Mean World Syndrome, it is so easy to stereotype and scapegoat people. Um, you can think there's tons of historical examples of this. 
um, you know, a current one, you know, immigrants are stealing our jobs. It's very easy to target one race. Um, another one would be terrorism today. You know, we think, when I say terrorist, you most likely thought of a Muslim person. Um, and that's that's simply not the case. You know, terrorists can come from any religion, any race, any ethnicity. Um, but with with the way the media operates today, it's so easy to create those stereotypes. And as a result of this, mean world syndrome creates mean people. It creates people that are scared and angry at entire groups of other people. Uh, people that are really out of touch with reality, out of touch with actual crime statistics and actual levels of danger. Um, there is one important thing to mention, kind of a disclaimer about Gerbner's studies. Uh, since his initial study, there has only been low-level statistical evidence of this cultivation effect. Uh, but Gerbner has responded to that, as well as other media scholars, by saying that this low-level effect, when you give it to every American, really builds up. And my textbook gave a great analogy for this of global climate change. You might think, oh, the temperature rises one or two degrees, not a big deal. It is a big deal. So looking into more recent research, Gerbner was active in the 1960s. Uh, this stuff is a little more recent. Uh, global connections have been found for Mean World Syndrome. Media is one of the major exports of the United States. Uh, we don't have a lot of raw materials, but we sure do have uh, a lot of ideas and opinions to spread out. So American television is at this point where it's starting to distort perceptions of reality abroad. And there are tons of examples of this, so I'm just going to touch on a few of them. Uh, in Australia, teenagers that are shown American TV believe that Australia is a more dangerous place than those that haven't seen it. Uh, it doesn't matter to those Australian teenagers that the setting of the violence that they're watching is in America. They uh, extrapolate that message to their own home country. Um, there's also been studies in South Korea that show that the women there that are exposed to American TV experience a shift in their ideals. They become more liberalized uh, in regards to marriage and children and women's roles in society and consumerism. Uh, and then another one I want to touch on is that people in India rated their own lives as less satisfactory after watching American television uh, because of the way American television just portrays this rich and glamorous lifestyle. Um, my professor gave the example of friends uh, in that there was no way that those people could have afforded that nice of an apartment in New York City. Um, there's also important implications for gender with cultivation effects. And that's because 60 to 65% of TV roles belong to men. Uh, that's, that has a lot of implications because people begin to see the television world as their real world. They see men in these successful roles, dominating careers, dominating households, communities, uh, and they start to transpose that into their own lives when really that's not the case uh, with actual population distributions. And there are a couple other things that I want to hit at real quick that the textbook mentioned that I thought were kind of interesting. Uh, it doesn't really relate to Scream, but they're cool. Uh, so people who view more television have less knowledge of environmental issues 
and less confidence in science. Heavy TV viewing in children leads to an earlier onset of smoking, unhealthy attitudes about nutrition, and a greater acceptance of gender and sexual stereotypes. And finally, heavy TV viewers have more negative perceptions of people with mental illnesses. What's really scary about cultivation effects is that over time, heavy TV viewers forget that what they're seeing isn't real. And this is the point that it becomes really dangerous. Um, And if you ask them a question like, how likely are you to be mugged within the next month? They answer those questions very quickly, much more quickly than um, a light television viewer would. And what this has shown researchers is that heavy viewing of television creates these cognitive shortcuts. Um, it's like a link. It's, it's a quick answer for them to get out. So there's less reasoning involved uh, when these heavy television viewers make decisions. Things to keep an eye out for in the future, um, where this research is sort of headed. Video games obviously are a big one. I feel like every media effect that I've studied this semester and last semester, we've talked about um, how that research is heading heading towards video games in the future um, and the internet overall. Another big part of cultivation right now is viewer choices. You can pick, at least in my situation I know, I can pick any type of media that I want and access it right now on my laptop. If I want to watch CNN or Fox or ABC or CBS, it's on my laptop. If I want to watch a comedy or a horror or an action movie or a foreign movie that's never been released in my country, there's somewhere I can find it online. Uh, my, my TV that my parents have, um, they've got like 900 channels, which is just crazy to me. You know, I remember growing up and I would have the same like three channels that I would cycle back and forth through. But now there's just this plethora of options, and that makes it possible for audience members to surround themselves with whatever message they want. You know, if I, if I want to surround myself with um, things that are anti-education, I don't know why I would want to do that, but if I wanted to, I could surround myself with that message and that kind of content. If I wanted to surround myself with content about space exploration, it's possible. Uh, and the real danger in that is that people can surround themselves with negative messaging. I can look... I can watch true crime documentaries for weeks, you know, just just based on what Netflix has. I can watch the news, which really focuses on the negatives, 24 hours a day. And the final thing to look for with cultivation studies in the future is conglomeration. And this this has been a huge theme across almost all of my courses in broadcasting. And conglomeration is this it's not an idea, it's a fact um, that the corporations that own media are getting s- larger and larger. They're really condensing. You know, you'll hear buyouts. Um, I think the stat might be like four or five companies control the majority of the news that's available worldwide. And the danger in this lies in that whatever those four or five executives want you to hear is what you're going to get. So that's definitely something to keep an eye out for in the future. Uh, So just to tie all this back in to Scream, uh, 
you know, Billy says movies don't create killers, they make killers more creative. And that was an idea that was really uh, ahead of a lot of Americans, even still today. It's, it's very easy to find that scapegoat in media and say, oh, it's the media that's, you know, creating violence. Let's just restrict the media. When really, that's, that's not the truth behind it. Um, it's obvious from the case studies at the top of the episode that movies can, you know, play a role in determining modus operandi and that sort of thing. And media may even be a trigger for some violent actions. But to simply assign media the sole role of creating violent impulses is really too simplistic of a solution. And as Gerbner's study showed, the majority of people don't imitate what they see. They internalize this fear of what they've seen on media and extrapolate that on the real world. So uh, that's it for this episode. A a little deep there, a little political at times. Um, But as always, if you want to reach me, you can do that on Twitter. The username there is at HorrorSciencePO, or you can shoot me an email if you prefer that, and that's at HorrorSciencePodcast at gmail.com. The website's still going to be up. I'm going to keep that updated. It's horrorscience.x10host.com. Just a quick reminder, make sure you switch over the um, general category that you're listening to on iTunes. It's going to have the same name. It's going to have the same picture, but all eight episodes will be available. Uh, And just another last-minute reminder, the SoundCloud is going to go down within the next couple of weeks, so... Look to see that change coming. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, If you have any comments on this episode or suggestions for future episodes, uh, you've got the contact information now. And hopefully the next episode will be out within the next two weeks.